Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today's very interesting conversation, I just want to pause for just a moment to say thank you to DBV Technologies for being a very kind sponsor of Facts Roundtable podcast. Please note that today's guest was not sponsored by DBV or compensated in any way by the sponsor to participate in this specific podcast. Today, we're exploring the nutritional impact of food texture aversions and other challenges that can arise from health conditions related to food. Joining us is registered dietitian Megan McNeil, who also holds a Master of Science degree focusing on nutritional science from the University of Cincinnati. Megan currently works at Cincinnati Children's Center for Eosinophilic Disorders, and she will share her tried and true tips to help listeners find the path to success. Welcome, Megan. We're absolutely delighted to have you on Facts Roundtable podcast. Today is going to be a fabulous day as we discuss food aversions and a few of the other health conditions that are impacted by food. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, we're absolutely delighted and thrilled. We know you're really busy, so we appreciate your time. So let's just start off. Let's just jump right in with you sharing your background and your current work with nutrition and children, just so listeners can get to know you better. I know you, but they don't know you yet. Sure. So I have a little bit of a different background from a dietitian perspective. I completed my internship to be a dietitian. It's kind of like clinicals for nursing. That's the last piece of your education and training um, before you can sit to take an exam to be a dietitian. After that, I actually got a job working in nutrition research at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. So I got to work for a metabolic research kitchen, which was a very fun job where we measured foods to the 10th of a gram when you were making recipes and then portioning them out to families. So you knew exactly what a family was getting, provided that the foods to them. And then we got the foods back, you weighed them. And so in theory, it was the best way to know exactly what a kid was eating throughout the day. And the conditions varied. So I worked with families or kids who had cystic fibrosis, type 1 diabetes. One study, actually, the parents of the children were in a breastfeeding study. And 20 years later, the kids were being observed. They were looking at cholesterol and things like that. So I did that for three years. I then worked on a bone density study that was funded by the National Institute of Health. That study, when it's all the data is ready to go, will make reference charts for bone density for kids one to five years old. So that was really interesting to be a part of. Then worked with families who the kids had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it was another study funded by the National Institute of Health. And we actually got to work with the families for a year and see if working with a dietitian every two weeks had a positive impact on their 
lifestyle changes and things like that to have better control of their condition, which when that study was over, it led me to a great opportunity to switch to working as a clinical dietitian, working with families who have food allergies and things like that. You have an amazing background. It sounds so fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's been very fun. Uh, I would not have made that trail right after my internship, but I've learned a lot. And it's honestly just been enjoyable. And at the end of the day, it's it's really fun working with kids um, and helping them. And so I think it makes my day-to-day work life a little bit more interesting and, and enjoyable. And I'm sure it's rewarding as you see them grow up too. Like you see the fruits of your labor right in front of you. Absolutely. So let's get right into the grit of our conversation today. In past podcasts, your colleagues have discussed ways to discover good nutrition when living on a restricted diet due to EOE, food allergies, and so forth. But still today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of those eating challenges for children with food allergies, EOE, and then other related conditions. And we're going to look at the things that they might face, such as food or texture aversions. So first off, if you can explain to listeners what food aversions are, and then also if you can go into a little deeper into those other conditions like F-Pies, you are definitely the master and the expert on this right now. Sure. In its simplest form, a food aversion really just is a strong dislike for a particular food, and that could be from sight, smell, taste, or texture. And To be perfectly honest, anyone can have a food aversion. So I have always had a food aversion to egg, to scrambled eggs. It's just never been a texture that I've liked. It's not uncommon and something that might come to mind is a pregnant woman might have a food aversion to a strong smelling food or something like that. So it's always important to kind of think about the fact that everyone can have a food aversions, but Where it might become more important is if those food aversions are so extreme that's impacting their nutrition, their quality of life, things like that. When we get a little more specific, a food aversion comes something like a reluctance, avoidance, or even a fear of eating or drinking a food. And that's where food allergy and food aversion typically comes more into play because something's going on with that person where they are actually kind of uncomfortable eating that food or certain types of food. And if it happens in abundance, then we could have issues with growth and things like that. So, you know, there are going to be different reasons that someone can have a food aversion beyond just our general preference that maybe I don't like the texture of scrambled eggs, which for me, I'm going to be okay just avoiding scrambled eggs just based on a preference. First line of thinking is just lack of exposure. So if someone hasn't had a texture It's not uncommon for your body to say, whoa, whoa, what is this? And you're a little less familiar with how to handle that. More important is then if you're an infant or a toddler who's still working on their oral motor skills, then that new texture can be even more off-putting. The first question is, is this just something we need to get used to? You know, research shows it takes about 15 to 20 times for a young child to kind of get used to a new texture. So that's kind of where this thought mindset comes into play, like just keep exposing your kid to something because maybe they just need to become more familiar and get used to it. And that is going to look a little different for every kid. To go into infant nutrition, a big part of what we do when we work with infants is we're trying to, once solid foods get on the table, 
we are trying to increase as many textures as possible as safely as we can so that that exposure helps prevent food aversions as the kids get older. But there could also be anatomical things going on. So an esophageal stricture, which is basically just like an abnormal tightening or narrowing of the esophagus, um, which could happen for a variety of reasons. But in theory, right, if that tube that gets the food from your mouth to your stomach is smaller, it could just make it difficult to get foods to pass through. Another thing which we'll talk more about is eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a type of allergy that's less known. It's not as much the allergy you think of where you're having hive, maybe vomiting from foods, things like that. So the allergy actually presents in your esophagus and can actually make your esophagus more narrow. And so that can make eating more of a challenge as well. But the third consideration for why you might have a food aversion is just a traumatic experience. So if you ingested milk, whether you're eight months old and it was a milk-based formula or you're four years old and you vomit, you might psychologically just have this negative association that when you ingest this thing, you might vomit. And because we're humans and intelligent, you say, hey, hey, let's not do that. I don't know if that's safe. And so those are kind of considerations when working with families as a dietitian that we're taking into play when we hear someone has a food aversion and we're saying, okay, why and how extreme and how is this impacting specifically in children, their growth and development? Thank you so much for giving that clarity, because I have to say I have an aversion to tomato juice, which is obviously going to be very different for someone with a texture thing. But I can still see it's so important to identify this because, like you said, you avoiding egg is not bad. I mean, me avoiding tomato juice is not a tragedy. But when you've got a growing child and they need nutrition or you have a college student who really needs good nutrition, this becomes really critical. Right. And so that's where that that phrase, it's all relative, is such an important place in this, because what is it and then how how much is it affecting that person? So let's dive a little bit more into different types of food allergies. I think most people are familiar with what we call an IgE allergy, IgE-mediated allergy, which is an immune response. And the symptoms are going to look similar to probably what you would come to mind when you say food allergy. So swelling of the throat, vomiting, maybe even anaphylaxis, do we need an epinephrine pin, things like that, hives. There are other types of food allergies that are less well-known. Eosinophilic esophagitis, which I'm going to call EOE moving forward because it is such a mouthful. It's what we call a mixed mediated food allergy, but essentially what it does is When you ingest a food, eosinophils are produced and they actually come along your esophagus and that's where you get this tightening and narrowing of your esophagus and can have food aversions and things like that. There's another food allergy called FPIES and it's food protein-induced enterocolitis, which is much easier just to call FPIES. It's a very unique food allergy, not to minimize EOE or IgE allergies in any way. But FPIES typically presents in infancy and zero to six months, typically the trigger is going to be cow milk or soy, which just comes from formula or from breast milk. And then six to 12 months, a lot of times the trigger is actually oat or rice. A thought being a little bit because it's one of the first foods that are introduced. So if you think about when you're giving your child your their first food, it might be, you know, an oat cereal rice-based cereal, things like that. 
So all of those conditions have unique nutrition management, but that's just kind of globally how they can look and present a little different. I did not realize that about F-Pies where there's phases. And you're right, these are very typical foods that babies are exposed to. Yeah, as a dietitian, all of these conditions, they definitely have their challenges. But what's interesting is that you can find a lot more foods than first come to mind with for families. And I think that that's kind of a, a fun part of my job is parents come in and their shoulders are up and they're really nervous and they're really anxious and they say they can't feed their kids anything. And then when we get to talking and we hear what foods are in their diet, not for every child, but a lot of times we can find more foods. So it can make everyone feel better. And then their families feel like they can feed their children, which is such an important part of parenting and things like that. Oh, yeah, I can completely relate to being panicked. You know, when my son was diagnosed with his allergies at two, the list was really long. And that's the first thing that hits your head. What am I going to feed this child? And so that's why someone like you is so key, because you're the problem solver who's actually calm, because we're going to be in this very elevated emotional state, because we've got 10 layers of I have to take care of this kid. This is my responsibility. Oh, my gosh. And so we're in this panic where you're this you know, very calm, thoughtful professional that's already actually worked this out. And so you really know what nutrition is needed and you don't need as much cow's milk as you think you do. Actually, you don't even need any, right? Because there are other ways to make up for the calcium and all these other things. But as a parent, we go into it just frantic. So you got a good spot in this world. Well, we're always happy when families use their their resources because we're here to make your jobs easier when we can. And we're happy about that. (laughs) So now moving forward, I know many children also have challenges surrounding textures, and you mentioned that just a little bit. Not long ago, a mother of a child with EOE once told me that living with EOE and choosing food with the right texture was just this big part of her life. So can you help explain to all of us, what did she mean by that? Yeah, so... I kind of went over why someone with a food allergy such as EOE might have food aversions and things like that. So when you think about they have food aversions and then part of EOE management sometimes can be that you take foods out. So we'll use, for example, the top eight allergens are known triggers of EOE, but milk and wheat actually are the most common triggers. So in an ideal scenario, we take the top eight allergens out. And then after it's been identified that they have inactive disease, by doing an endoscope, we can actually introduce the foods. Typically about every three months, wheat's going to be about six months, and you can actually build back the diet. So this is great because we're finding their cause and then the quality of life and the diet opportunities expand as we get to add more foods in. And when we add foods in, it's because they had another scope to look at the esophagus. And then the physician can say yay or nay to whether or not that food that we're trialing does in fact have an effect on their esophagus or their condition. Part of this disease management is going to be contingent on if that person has active disease. So if their esophagus is inflamed, they're going to have likely more aversions to textures. But it doesn't take away also that psychological trauma they've experienced. So for some kids or 
you know, whoever has EOE, once they feel better, they're going to have an easier time eating different textures and things that previously made them more nervous. Some patients don't get over it that easy. So there are two patients that come to mind when I want to give examples on food aversion specific to having EOE. I just worked with a 10-year-old patient who is new to our group, and he was able to verbalize to me within the first three minutes of meeting him that eating is very stressful and that when he eats, he's afraid he's going to choke. So he's 10, and he's mostly getting a liquid diet. But he's, again, a new patient to our center, so he's just starting a treatment plan. Hopefully, they can find something that's effective for him, and then those fears can go away as his esophagus hopefully becomes less inflamed. A different patient, a three-year-old, also new to our center, isn't very verbal, and his EOE symptoms just became very active like a couple months ago. So until three, he was eating pretty typical for his age. But with these onset of symptoms with choking and things like that, he's refusing any solid foods and just sticking to a liquid diet. So again, the question is, is we're taking out the top eight allergens. When we take those out, if those are, if one of his triggers is in there and he has inactive disease, will he start to feel more comfortable taking in solid foods? So the next layer to this is we have to look at each patient individually. So every, everyone has different things going on. So also sometimes texture and food aversions are all due to more cognitive components of delays. So do they have sensory processing disorder? Have there been oral motor skill delays due to something else going on? A person diagnosed with autism, sensory is a common thing that comes up as a symptom for that condition, someone with autism might have sensory issues outside of their food allergy management, and that might be taken into consideration when we're working with those families as well. This is very complicated. Again, we are very glad we have dietitians and nutritionists out there to help us. So in addition to the food aversions, are there any other challenges that may stem from like food allergies, EOE, etc.? What is well known is that Young children who have been diagnosed with a food allergy can have issues with growth and development. And it's just the simple thought that nutrition is going to be a little harder to get in, specifically with those food aversions, but also considering they're taking out, especially if it's like a cow milk allergy, that from their diet, which when you're younger is a main source of helping get adequate calories and fat in. But the other thing to consider is specific nutrition concerns like calcium and vitamin D. So those can be deficient in someone who has a cow milk allergy or is avoiding cow milk. For someone who has multiple food allergies, surprisingly, you can actually become iodine deficient if you are not eating a lot of processed foods just due to how many foods are in your diet. So then just adding iodized table salt is something we'd recommend in that case. So on this note, then what can a parent or caregiver do if they suspect their child is experiencing feeding or eating challenges? What would be the first step in finding a diagnosis and getting help? I would start with their pediatrician, assuming they have a good relationship with their pediatrician. First question is, are they growing well? Because if they're not meeting their growth goals, then we need to do a a nutrition intervention based on what's happening. And then we can figure out why it's happening. So assuming the patient is growing well, then the question is, we need to dive into where should we go next? 
Because a lot of times the pediatrician will then make a referral. Sometimes the referral could be to go to an occupational therapist or a speech therapist to just kind of help with that development of the oral motor skills and figure out what's going on there. But sometimes doing a referral to a gastroenterologist specialist would be appropriate. And for EOE specifically, that's where we'd want to go because the diagnosis of EOE is actually through an endoscope. And that's something a GI physician would do. Do you just have any tips in general that you want people to hear from you? Yeah, I think that when it comes to food aversions in particular, especially when you have a food allergy present, I'm a big fan of just the the idea Rome wasn't built in a day. And really taking into consideration your individual needs for your child, but as well as your family. Food aversion, if we go back to the very start, can just be as simple as disliking something. A lot of times because food and nutrition in this day and age is such a hot topic and something that everyone wants to do such a good job with, especially in younger kids, the stress can be a little bit higher when your kid isn't eating a typical diet in the way that you view it. So I think it's important for parents just to take a step back. If your child's growing well and your child has different foods in their diet, that's a good place to start. Using your resources, whether it's a dietitian, whether it's an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, is really great because they're going to give you evidence recommendations to work with your child at their pace. It's not uncommon. I'll work with a child who is, you know, 12 to 18 months, and they are behind on textures that they should be used to at that point. They may not have had a diagnosis of a food allergy until a little bit later in their first 12 months of life. And so what I tend to do, we have this great handout and it's called Beginning Table Foods. And it's meant actually for any patient at Children's and it lays out typically what a four to six month old should have texture wise transitioning, you know, six to eight months, what that goal can look like. And the progression is to get them to thicker textures that are more like table foods. But when I'm working with a patient who is past 12 months who I'm using this handout for, a lot of times I say, just ignore the age, the month goal, and go ahead and just the goal is to get that progression. And it's not going to be specific to what this handout says, but it's going to be specific to what your child needs. So a lot of times I think that taking a step back, giving yourself a lot of credit and taking a deep breath and meeting your child where they're at is a good place to start. So Megan, do you have any extra tips that we might not have heard from you yet? You know, there is one resource I think that could be great. Um, This will be a little more specific to someone who has a kid with a food allergy more in that, you know, infant to toddler age range. There is this app. It is called Solid Starts. And I'll be sure to share that in our link. But it's kind of geared towards baby-led weaning. But what's really cool about this app, like I'm looking at it right now, and so It'll actually break down the age that it's appropriate to introduce it and then actually like different ways to introduce it from a texture standpoint. Even give you like I'm looking at egg right now and it'll show about six months as long as your kid doesn't have an egg allergy, something like an omelet strip where they can kind of hold on to it and then building up to like bite-sized pieces and things like that. So it's just a really cool visual on what different textures can look like for different foods. 
That is incredible. I'm so jealous. My kids are in their 20s and I'm glad they're young adults, but oh, what a great tool this would have been back in the day. Personally, as a person who myself works with patients with food allergies, I use it too because that visual for me just makes it a lot easier to explain to families. I'm a visual learner completely, so I appreciate it. Well, thank you for that fabulous tip. Well, it's hard to believe this has gone so fast, but we are at the end of our time together. So do you have any last parting words for everybody? Let food be as fun as it can. And when you're finding your have restrictions, kind of think outside the box and think what that could look like. And always find a registered dietitian if you're feeling stuck. Excellent advice. And I will make sure in the show notes, I have a link on how to find a dietitian in your area. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're just super busy and we just appreciate your time and we look forward to having you back on the show again. Awesome. Thanks, Carolyn. Once again, I would like to say thank you to DBV Technologies for being a very kind and generous sponsor of Facts Roundtable Podcast. Please note that today's guest was not sponsored by DBV Technologies or compensated in any way by the sponsor to participate in this specific podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.